International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 8. Values in Film and Christian Calling. So the end of the line is the mortal cost Kazan talked about, where your hero is in mortal cost, morally, spiritually, emotionally, maybe physically. Certainly his whole life is in the balance, okay? Kazan, one of the things I love about Kazan is almost no one is honest about their own work. Almost no one has the capacity to be ruthless about their own work, to be ruthlessly honest. Especially, say, when your work, like, say, Gentleman's Agreement has won, I don't know, what was it, five Academy Awards? I can't remember, including Best Picture, everything. So in 1947, he made this film with Gregory Peck, uh, which is a famous film, which actually looked at anti-Semitism in America. And what it was was that uh, Peck, who was a journalist, posed as a Jew for a period of time in the film and discovered all sorts of prejudice. And it, and it caused a major stir back in the late 40s. It was the first time the word Jew had been used in a, in a film, I think. Uh, so it, it dealt with a controversial issue uh, very powerfully in a sense. And Kazan looks at his film and he says, um, I didn't take him to the end of the line. There was no mortal cost for my hero. Uh, so, okay, they showered it with awards and so on. But really, this is, this is a good film, but it'll never be great. And he's absolutely right. <laughs> absolutely right. Mm -hmm. uh, because in film, whether it's a documentary, whether it's a feature film, there has to be a cost. Okay? And guess who's going to pay that cost? The person who is the subject of the film has to pay the cost. And so what Kazan's getting at here, okay, his main character didn't have to pay a cost. He played at being a Jew for a month or for a week. And then he went back to his nice, cozy, middle-class journalist background. Do you understand? What's the risk in that? What's the mortal cost in that? And that's the flaw in the film. Everyone knows the character isn't taken to the end of the line. In uh, East of Eden, which is a very powerful film with James Dean, um, where the son, the two sons, remember? In a sense, the good son and the bad son, as it were. And where, where the son is desperate to please his father, desperate for his father to... Uh, to approve of what he does. He's not like his father. You know? uh, and it ends with uh, the father, remember, on his, 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 in his sort of deathbed, embracing the son. And Kazan says, that was a load of crap. He said, I let them off the hook. <laughs> you know? I didn't take him to the end of the line. That's not what would have happened in life. I wanted that ending, I needed that ending, so I cheated. Okay, and this is this film that everyone thinks is a great, powerful film, you know? And he is right. Because he's talking about great stories. He's talking about what does it mean to take someone to the end of the line? And the criteria, the things you judge by, suddenly become totally different from... He gave it a Christian ending. His ending would have fitted in nicely into all the Christian films I've ever seen. 
the end of the line is sometimes called the negation of the negation. Another word for it some people use is the super opposite. So the super opposite. Okay, what this means is, uh, anyone seen the film Missing? Jack Lemmon, you know, he, uh, if you want to do visual media, you best at least start seeing the films that win Oscars. This film won a clutch of Oscars. So Jack Lemmon, Missing, The Negation of the Negation. Jack Lemmon, uh, son, has been gone missing, as the title would suggest, in Central America, okay? Remember, like, it's El Salvador, Nicaragua, all over again. It goes missing. Jack, Jack Lemmon goes down there, and... Uh, he goes down there with a series of opinions and prejudice. He thinks his son's a fool. He's rather annoyed he's having to go there. His son's gone missing. He's grieved as a parent. He's worried as a parent, but he thinks, you know, I, I need this like a hole in the head. So here I have this idiot son doing whatever he's doing down here, protesting whatever he's protesting down here, and now he's missing. So it serves him right, but let's try and find him. And every film... Every great film has this. It has a center of, and this next word is music to your ears. Good. It has a center of good. And that center of good is incarnated by your hero. Okay? This is wonderful news for you in terms of your calling. Your calling to evangelize, to pre-evangelize, to use, you know. Uh, in other words, the nature of the art form contains the center of good at the center of it. It'd be very hard for your calling if the nature of it contained the center of bad. Okay? And the center of good in missing is a word called justice. Justice. This word is the center of good in missing, this film. Now, uh, this center of good is relative, okay? This center of good is not absolute. In other words, the father's sense of justice or the father's incarnation of justice is not going to be biblical, okay? It's not going to be, he's not going to have the same sense of justice that God has, you know, or Jesus has. His, his sense of justice is going to be relative to the world around him, okay? It's relative. He's going to be relative, it's going to be made relative in terms of his own upbringing. Is it going to be, in fact, exactly like life? Justice. So here he is. He goes down there, and he's a good man. Okay, he doesn't agree with his son, but he's not a bad man. He's a good man. He's an average man. He goes down there. He's an American guy. And what he starts to encounter are little 
the foothills of injustice. So in Act One, he encounters like not the opposite to justice. He doesn't encounter injustice. He, he encounters like the contrary, the, the, the minor injustices, okay? Like people are harassed, people are not, uh, they're held without warrants that, you know, he starts to encounter all this. And then slowly he starts to encounter injustice. People are brutalized, they're arrested, they're killed, you know, all this stuff. Okay? That is where most Christian films stop. Okay? They stop at the opposite of the center of good. So they, they deal with the contrary, and they deal with the opposite, which is injustice. They, they deal with that. That is not the end of the line, unfortunately. Okay? That is not the end of the line. The end of the line is encountered when in missing, he starts to realize this is a place where justice doesn't matter a fig. This is a place where tyranny reigns. This is a place where justice is just not an issue. And how people say is that they say to him, well, this is not the United States of America. Do you, do you see me? You know, this is a place where not only do you encounter injustice, which is the opposite of the center of good, you actually encounter the super opposite. You, you go to the end of the line. This is a place where justice can't flourish. One thing that's really important to understand here is that you have a worldview. Each of us has a worldview. I was... Um, and that worldview, sorry, that worldview influences everything you do and your writing and, and what you do. As Patricia says, who you are will come into your ministry. It will come into your writing in a big way. It will come into your stories. And you know the good news, which Christians often don't understand, is that that's totally okay. In other words, the, the world has no problem with that. The world actually wants to see the worldview of the writer, the filmmaker, okay? They expect that. Uh, the French indeed have a word for writer. They, they use the word martyr, which comes from the Greek, you know, uh, for witness of the writer. No, it's, uh, it's legitimate um, to describe your worldview. Uh, the, the catch-22 about this is that you must be totally honest. You must describe the world as you perceive it, morally and spiritually, but you must totally, be totally honest in that. Okay? And if you are not, uh, the world again gets a revelation complex and spews you out. If you deal with the whole of life honestly, with integrity, uh, then when you actually deal in spiritual matters, they say, fine. No problem. But if you actually cheat, if you actually are theme-driven, if you don't tell true stories, if you actually want to get here, so you cheat to get there, it just says, we don't want that. We don't want to be, we don't want to be manipulated. We don't want that propaganda. Do you see? We'll go back to this. Values are the lifeblood of drama. Okay. This is absolutely true. Put very simply, what this means is relationship, how people relate to us, is always what's being put under the microscope in drama. You know, it's, it's relationship that people are looking at. Every drama is dealing with relationships. It's looking with the whole question of uh, what is moral, what is the value of relationship? How, how, how do we relate well? How do we relate lovingly to you know, People don't know they're doing that. 
But that's what the issue is. And, and what this means is, it has a very serious implication, okay? Um, the, the implication is this, that there is no neutral <coughs> values in story, okay? You're always making a statement whether you know it or not. Uh, I know some famous Christians in Hollywood, and they always just say to me, but it's just entertainment. And I say, I'm sorry. <laughs> It's not just entertainment. Every time you make a film, every time you, you make a statement, and how you make that statement most powerfully, whether you know it or not, are through the assumed values in your film. Okay? The assumed values in your film. In other words, these are the values that are there, but they're so assumed you don't even have to talk about them. And that's why they're powerful. Okay, the, the film actually assumes that this is the way life is. And it's so this way, you don't even have to think about it, talk about it. It's not an issue. An example of that would be in Kramer versus Kramer, where he sleeps with a woman, okay? So here's a man who is learning what it means to be responsible to be a parent. But sleeping with the, the woman from the office is just, in the film, it's nothing. It's just, why would it, you even think of this as a value or an issue? It's just not an issue. The only way it becomes an issue is in terms of his boy which is interesting. Do you, do you understand? It's an assumed value. So it makes a statement. Okay? It makes a statement. And uh, Hollywood is totally clear about that. It actually understands that assumed values are the ones that change the world. Not values that you actually put up in big letters. And, and, and that's our tendency. That's our moral tendency as Christians is to put, label our films with values, okay? And, and think that's how we have power. We actually put these in front of people. What is power is assumed values. The assumed values of your hero, the lifestyle of your hero, the way, the things he just takes totally for granted. That's what actually is the model you present. You see, that's the model. Uh, those are the powerful ones. Because what you're actually saying to people is, this is so normative, we don't even have to discuss it. We don't know that this is the single most powerful way to change the thinking of people. We don't even recognize the value often when it jumps up and hits us in the face. We recognize it in the gospel, but not in film. We recognize it in the gospel, but not in the novel. I tested this out once, <laughs> in case you think I'm making it up. Uh, a gathering of Christians at Old Souls uh, in, in Langham Place in London, uh, we had a a big meeting for, of all media people, people whom you would think would recognize a value in a film, okay? These were not just people who hadn't got a background in media. These were people who were the leading media people, and the church was full of them. And uh, I put out a little questionnaire on something like 20 films, and I said, do you think the value is good? Do you think the value is neutral? Do you think the value is negative? It's a very simple questionnaire. And just tick, 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 tick the column. And I won't go into the, the results. The results were quite depressing. But I won't go into them all. But one of the films was a, a film called Rebel Without a Cause. And I looked at all the ticks, and it was negative, negative, no values. Now, this is probably the most on-the-nose, valued film I've, I've seen for years, understand? And it was the kind of thing this film does, OK, is, OK, yes, you have a, a surface situation where he's a young rebel, James Dean, and he gets into fights and they have chicken runs with the cars and so on. But the heart of the film has got nothing to do with that. Right at the heart of the film, 
are the parents saying to him, these are the values you should have. When this happens, this is what you should do. So then, at a certain point in the film, when he gets into deep trouble and someone dies and so on, he goes to the parents and says, I should tell the police. And what do you think the parents say? Hmm? What do you think they say? Do you think, say, go tell the police? No, they don't. They say, for heaven's sake, you know. <laughs> and, and when confronted by it, they say, well, you know, <laughs> you, you mustn't sort of listen to us all the time sort of thing. You know? <laughs> Does this film not have a value? Do, I, I, do we really not see this? I mean... So right at the heart of this film is a whole series of values. That's just a one-off example, you know, that run through this film, okay? But you actually have to look with eyes that see. You have to have a dialogue with the film to see it. It's not going to come in the obvious, this is a value, big label on it, okay? So I found it quite depressing, the experience. But I just thought, well... This is an education problem. It's don't be depressed, just educate. Don't be depressed, educate. Uh, if people are going to live their calling, they need education. I needed education. People need education. Which, and what they really need education in are the whole issue of values and their calling is to tell stories about the world as they see it, with honesty. It's a wonderful calling. I mean, I, I think this is the good news, you know. Honestly. About world as we see it. I, I just wanted to, to clarify the what I'm saying here about certain issues of, of Christian calling, okay? Uh, I will strike hard, as hard as I can, at where I feel this calling has been misunderstood, where the calling, for example, to address the world, uh, to evangelize and to pre-evangelize, particularly maybe to pre-evangelize, but also evangelism, where people have not understood the nature of the media. And why I'll do that is because I actually have a concern. I see no reason why it should continue. And there was, a lot of this approach came out of ignorance. But if you're not ignorant, you can do something different. Okay? However, lest I be misunderstood, let me clearly say that there are probably four callings in Christian media. Okay? And it's important to, to know that so you can actually see where your calling is. Uh, who your audience is, and therefore how you respond. So there is a calling uh, in media, Christians in media, of presence. That could be your whole calling. It could be your calling is, is not to do things, but to actually be a presence. There are people in Christian media who are facilitators. Uh, in a sense, their presence, who they are, is their calling. They're prophetic witnesses to how you can be in this media and be a Christian presence. And they may have a function, so they may be, they, they may be producers, they may be editors, they may, they may have an official role, but really their, their calling is bigger than their role. Okay? You may be a teacher, 
if you're a teacher, it's quite likely that you will be directly addressing the Christian community. And there's a huge need for teaching in the area of media. Okay. Um, and that is a to all these are totally valid callings. I have no problem with any of these callings. And these are uh, incredibly God-given callings. Uh, you may be a teacher. You may have a pastoral calling. And it may not be always obvious to you that you do. So, for example, if you start, uh, in our country, for example, they started a Christian radio station last year. If you do that, you actually have to understand that part of what you're doing will involve a pastoral dimension. As soon as you start to put Christian testimony, as soon as you start to put a, a Christian radio station into the middle of London, say, or anywhere, you better understand that part of what you're doing involves a pastoral calling. People with needs are going to respond to that, and you must have a way of referring or meeting those needs. Otherwise, you're being very irresponsible and very short-sighted about part of your calling. Okay. It's what we've understood, say, more and more about... Uh, and we, we, we all would totally agree that you can't go out and have mass rallies without actually backup, without local church backup, without... We, we understand all these things, okay? But we don't often articulate them as calling. So people are often confused. They actually think, if I'm not creating, then what's my calling in Christian media? You can have a calling of presence. You can have a teaching calling. You can have a pastoral calling in many shapes, okay? And then you can have a calling to evangelism or pre-evangelism, okay? And uh, that calling to evangelism... Uh, it can be will be decided uh, in part by the culture and in part by your gifts. You know, there's a, it's probably foolhardy for you to try to directly evangelize in a culture that resists that unless you have very major gifts. You know, it's where you have major gifts of storytelling and of filmmaking whereby people will take very direct evangelism because of the way you're doing it, because, of the, because the actual stories you tell or the way you tell them are so powerful that people don't sit there thinking this is evangelism. They just experience it as life, which is exactly how you're making it. You're making it because this is part of your worldview and the life. So it's not you trying to coat a pill and say, if I can just get the pill down their mouths, it'll be okay. You actually believe that story and theology are one. And this involves a conversion process in your thought patterns. It involves you becoming Semitic, in a sense, like Jesus was, you know. And involves a, uh, a quite different outlook, often, on what you do. And then pre-evangelism is a, a calling whereby you are going to enter into a dialogue with the world, and you, in that process, are often going to learn more than you teach. It's like missionaries. They learned more than they, they taught in Africa, okay, often. And that profoundly affected their mission. And why their mission was so successful was it taught them to come as servants rather than conquerors. It taught them to come to learn, to serve, to um, bring quite a different gospel in a way. Um, I think you have no calling in pre-evangelism in our culture unless you love the world. God so loved the world. You know, it's the Father's will that nothing will. When uh, Patricia mentioned this word will, uh, you do know that in Hebrew and Aramaic, the word will is not like our use of the word will. 
our use of the word will is a very strong word. It's like we bend people to our will. It's like bending iron, you know. Will, willpower, we talk about willpower. So when we hear a word like the Father's will, we think, oh, it's the Father's like iron rod. And actually what the word means is, um, the Father's will that nothing be lost means it, it burns in the Father's guts. It burns him up. That anything should be lost. That's what it means. Uh, it, often the word is translated beloved. Okay, It's the same, similar word to... Uh, so th this is a fiery word. It's not a, an iron will kind of word. It's a fiery word. And unless you have that fire for the world, don't think you have a calling in pre-evangelism. Okay? And... Um, I was talking to Reinhard Bonker recently when I met him, and the thing that struck me most uh, when we were meeting was um, about him was that uh, was that fire, which was not a negative, and I was the fire for souls rather than the fear for souls. There's a difference, okay? It's the love of souls rather than the fear that souls will be lost. Do you see what I mean? It's a, it's a fire, okay? And um, pre-evangelism is a part of evangelism, the two are the same, but you, you have to love the world, you have to, be, to deeply desire to have a dialogue with the world, to speak the same language as the world, to see the good, to see where the Holy Spirit's working. My main calling is in pre-evangelism, my main calling is to deal in values in terms of a wide audience in the world. I make directly Christian films as well, but my main calling is in the area of pre-evangelism, okay, which missionaries have, thank God, have always understood is evangelism, in other words, if you start to try to uh, evangelize without pre-evangelism, you end up, say, where the missionaries in South Africa ended up last century, where because, say, they preached against polygamy without creating the body of Christ, they created total prostitution, widespread prostitution overnight in South Africa, okay? It was just not the way to do it. So when you separate pre-evangelism and evangelism, missionaries understand this is a disaster, okay? Uh, it's very interesting, uh, even in our day, right, this year, say, uh, missionaries from the third world who have talked to me said, but we understand the need for pre-evangelism in the third world and on mission. We don't understand it in the West. And I said, well, you understand almost nothing then. If you don't think there's a need to actually enter into a dialogue with the first world exactly the way you've entered into a dialogue with the third world, where are you coming from? You're in a mission situation, <laughs> pre-evangelist. These people don't know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? What's at issue? I mean, the battle comes down your tube every night. It's, it's called a battle for values, you know? And if you don't engage with that battle, don't think you're going to evangelize. So my main calling is pre-evangelism, okay? But um, in that, you, you actually have to have, enter into a truthful and honest dialogue with the world. And then the world has no problem. It doesn't have a problem with your character being a, a Scotch Presbyterian ministry. No problem at all. Its problem isn't, isn't on that areas at all. It's actually to do with integrity and honesty. Okay. I have a great respect for our calling of Christians and media, and it can take many forms. But you have to understand what the implication of your calling is and the responsibility that comes with that and the issues that come with it. Otherwise, you won't live it. You'll have a flawed vision, and that flawed vision will run through everything you do.